Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What is good, fam, token fam? Hey, listen, it's your boy Sanchez. Thank you so much for listening, tuning in, subscribing. I hope that you guys are getting these notifications. We're about to ramp up our season. Uh, in the meantime, Cedric and I are taking a few weeks to prep and plan. Uh, we've been busy wrapping up the summer, getting ready for school, all of the, all of that stuff you guys know about. So all that to say is we're excited about what's coming and we can't wait to share that with you. But in the meantime, we're gonna kick it back to a few of our favorite episodes. Uh, we've taken some time to just go. We realized like we've, we've released a ton of content and so some of the quality may vary because some of it we recorded during COVID, some of it was pre-COVID, so you'll hear some old music, you'll hear all of those things. However, we just want you guys to have some content because we do feel like a lot of what we've said on this podcast is heavy, but necessary and needed. And maybe some of you are new to the podcast and you haven't had the opportunity to really see our journey progress, and maybe you've missed out on some of these key and good conversations we've had. So anyways... Shout out to our Patreons. You guys make this podcast happen. You make it work. You allow us to continue to put out content, to continue to invite guests and, and, and keep this thing going. And if you're not a Patreon, please consider signing up on Patreon.com. Also, social media. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You have direct access to Cedric and myself, and we can't wait to engage with you. But in the meantime, enjoy this week's podcast. He's he's an educator. Man, he's just a man. You're gonna learn about him. So y'all just stay tuned. Y'all y'all gonna learn a lot tonight about this I am, guy. I am um, struggling today to share this on my God. Facebook page. You're struggling? Yeah. Let me I do don't this. know why. I'm gonna invite you to it. It keeps wanting to share it on groups I manage. No, no, no. You have to do it to your uh Yeah, that is weird. Maybe go to my page. And try to share it from my page and not so much. All right, all right, all right. Just yeah, try that way. All right, here we go. Let's try. Brady from Watershed Charlotte. Right on. Brady. All right, we're about to get started shortly. Yeah. What's up, let's Brady? See. Hey, listen, for those of you who don't, Mechdez, what's up, bro? Hey, listen, we need to get your perspective on here soon. Actually, we got a lot to talk about. I've been here some things. So, uh, we're going to make that happen. Boy. Uh, what's up, Tony? Yeah. yeah. Hey, listen, if you find that there are people that need to be on this conversation tonight, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world. We're going to talk about Greg's work. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and this is going to inform you. My mentor, Colin Pinkney, is on. Corey Dodgins from college. Hey, one actually, of my old. assuming on. Youth group, church friends, grew up with. Krista is on. Word. Yeah, man. 
Uh, who else we got? Uh, uh, Jeremy, what's up, man? How you doing, bro? James? Coach? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> coach, my, my college coach is on. I love it. Who else we got? All right, so listen, we're about to have we're about to start this conversation in about a minute and a half. So again, take some time to to tag some folks and invite some folks. This is going to be an important conversation um, that we're going to have. Franny, what's up? Uh, Lou, what's up? We're about to have a very important conversation that's going to really, really impact a lot of things, thought processes, beliefs, systems. We're gonna, we're going to bring a disruption tonight. Uh, for those of you who have not had the privilege to understand or know about what's going on in the world today. You can hop off here shortly and go see my Facebook page and kind of see what's going on. And that's going to inform you on what we're going to talk about tonight, a little bit amongst other things. So, so again, uh, I want to go ahead and give this disclaimer, even though I, I hate giving disclaimers. Uh, if you came or if you're coming with an agenda tonight, I'm just going to invite you to go. Uh, you have my permission to excuse yourself from this conversation. Uh, this conversation <laughs> is for us to uh, have have a really meaningful conversation and to bring uh, awareness to a lot of different things. So um, with that said, y'all ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we're ready. So listen, uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, uh, that are new and joining us, you may not know that Sanchez and Cedric, we actually have a podcast that we've been doing for about a year and a half uh, called Token Confessions. This is our journey from being token, uh, tokenized black men in predominantly white spaces and shifting into the work of anti-racism. And so, number one, a lot of people here are just not aware of that I had a podcast. A lot of people have a perception of me that they haven't necessarily um, caught themselves up to where I am in life. So, so understand that if you want, you want to know more about my journey, definitely I would invite you, uh, those are my friends listening and tuning in, to go back to our podcast that's everywhere and kind of hear the progression of our journey and why these topics are important to us. But again, it's me, Sanchez, and it's Cedric. We co-host this. And we just talk about history. We talk about hot topics like racism, uh, colonization, white privilege, whiteness, uh, and, a, and a whole a whole host of topics uh, that, that are important to talk about because it's a way uh, we've all been informed by these things. We've all been shaped in various ways by these things. And so... Uh, but today we actually have the privilege of having a friend, Greg Gerald, who lives here in Charlotte with us. And he has been, a, he's an ally. He is a, he's an advocate. He, he is very, very much so uh, on the front lines doing the work with us. Uh, he's not necessarily trying to come and take over anything. He's actually serving. And he's actually, for me, he's a great model for what white people can do, how they can leverage their privilege, how they can participate in the work of anti-racism while understanding how anti-racism should be lived out. So, uh, Greg, thank you for joining us. You're a hard man to get a hold of, so we really valuable your time. Yes, we do. know that you're you're in the process of doing a lot. So, so introduce yourself to our our, our friends and our, and our you know folks that are attending tonight. So, Shannon Hoover, you know Greg. Y'all know Shannon. 
Word. Yo, I should, I should have done that. Y'all are both phenomenal musicians. So. What's up, man? Yeah, that's one of my favorite guys right there to work Oh, man, he is the best. He is the best, man. So, But, yeah, great. So tell the people who you are. I know who you are. We know who you are. So tell us about who you are. Tell us about your journey, uh, where you started, and what has led you to where you are now. Talk about the work that you're doing, and then we'll get, we'll get going. Sure. Cool. So I, I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, my friends. Um, so Greg Gerald, I uh, live here in Charlotte. I'm over in the West Charlotte neighborhood called Enderly Park. That's been yes, home for, me for about 15 years. Um, so that's uh, real close to where uh, Cedric was. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Cedric. So where Sanchez was at, at Center City. Where Cedric is now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and oh, where Cedric is now. Is that right? Yeah, Urban yeah. Promise Street Leader Director. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, because yeah. when no, De- Deontay went to California and Ro moved into the site director, I became Street Leader Director. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah so let's see. I grew up in North Carolina, uh, right outside of Raleigh, in a little tobacco town called Fuquay Verena, um, mm-hmm. which was a, a good place to grow up, I guess. Um, and, uh, and Spence... Um, I grew up in a, in a Southern Baptist church. Uh, so, um, you know, sort of came up with um, the legacy of, of Southern Baptist evangelicalism, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that, that I'm, I'm really grateful for. And uh, there's some other uh, stuff that I've had to unlearn over the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, the, since you asked about the journey, uh, just a little piece of me is that I started sort of that process of unlearning in a place called East St. Louis, Illinois, right across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, East St. Louis is a disaster zone of industrial capitalism. Uh, It's sort of the, maybe the worst case scenario of what happens um, without any sort of uh, governmental regulation or intervention into the lives of people when systemic racism just runs wild. And so, um, so a century of disinvestment in East St. Louis. And I wound up working in a little rec center there, uh, Baptist-affiliated rec center. Um, so not a perfect place, but some amazing folks uh, there who showed me this kind of hospitality that I, I wasn't, that I didn't know to expect um, in a place of, of really deep economic poverty. And, uh, and so that really kind of set the course for me. It, it, it was 20-some years ago, and that really changed my direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, over the past 15, living here in Enderley Park, uh, you know, a place where I'm one of the, now one of a handful of white people uh, for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, the only white person around my family and I. And so, um, you know, it's been a, a process for us of, of being proximate but also taking really seriously our responsibility for learning how to interpret the world around us, how to see it, not through the lenses that I was given as a Southern Baptist boy raised in tobacco town, North Carolina, right? But uh, how to learn to see to the extent that I could from the perspective of my neighbors, how to understand the history, the complexities that I brought in with my own body that I didn't know about, uh, how to understand what it means to be white, and especially what it means to be white in the, in the context of a black neighborhood, right? Um, 
and so that's been, I mean, that's been a significant part of the journey. Like this is unlearning the habits of whiteness, sort of like a life, a lifelong um, kind of undertaking. And so, you know, I've been privileged to have people who, um, people who have been so gracious and kind and hospitable in the ways that um, they've been teachers and friends mm-hmm. and kin to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you, can you talk briefly about the process or can you unpack the process of unlearning as, as, as a white person, but not only as a white person, but as a white man? Yeah. About the process. Um, so, I mean, for one, it's a, so it's a never ending process, but, uh, step one for me, uh, was about becoming really uncomfortable. Um, and, and so, my, so my, one of my early memories from stepping into the context of East St. Louis, where I'm the only white guy on the block living in this recreation center was feeling fear. All right. And mm-hmm. feeling it within my body. And one of the ways that whiteness works uh, is by kind of divorcing white people and their spirit and their soul from their body. And, but I remember palpably feeling the fear. Like I had been taught, nobody ever spoke such words, right? But I had sort of learned, um, I see poverty, I see black people, like I'm supposed to be scared. So the yeah. culture taught me that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody ever said that out loud, um, but the culture's taught me that. And so to begin to feel that fear in my body and to have to acknowledge it, um, because yeah. at times it could be overwhelming um, at, at first. So to have to acknowledge that was one step along the journey of me recognizing, like, there's something wrong here. And there's yeah. something that's wrong within me that I need to dig into. I need yeah. to not leave it unexamined. So that's been a really important part of the process. Yeah, um, really I think good. another piece of the process, yeah, another piece of the process for me has been about um, becoming a student of history. And so, one of the ways that I'm work I'm working on trying to talk about this is that the the religion of whiteness is built around forgetfulness. Um, and so, <laughs> so we sort of we can you repeat that one more time. Repeat that one more time. <laughs> for the so, people in the back <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the religion of whiteness um, the, the binding principle of whiteness is about forgetfulness right? so Baldwin, James Baldwin um, at the beginning of the fire next time it says to his, to his nephew you have to understand about white people that they're caught up in a history that they cannot understand and until they understand it they cannot stop repeating it Right. Mm. And so we've had this world in, in the white world, we've had this, this kind of world constructed around us that, um, you know, we have slogans like heritage, not hate. Right. This <laughs> is all about forgetfulness. Right. Um, it's, it's not really reckoning with what the, the actual heritage is. It's mentalizing really right. the heritage so that we can forget it and, and carry the good feelings about it. And uh, one, of the ways, one of the ways I've connected really deeply with this over the past month, I just read a book called Wilmington's Lie, which is oh. about 
Hey, uh, are y'all familiar with this? I, I yeah. am. So, it's on yeah, my reading list. Yeah, highly recommended. Um, it, it, it reads quickly like a novel, so it's not like a dense history textbook necessarily. Um, but it's about the 1898 um, white supremacist coup in Wilmington, North yeah. Carolina, which was then the, the largest city in the state, uh, that took over a multiracial town government, burned the office of a black newspaper, ran all the, um, the black leadership within Wilmington out of town, forced people to leave town, killed dozens and dozens of people. And so um, one of the things I maybe carry with too much pride is like, I was a good student, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I graduated near the top of my class. You know, I like I read everything. And uh, this is m- one of the most significant historical events in my state. And I'm real proud to be a North Carolinian. Right. Yeah. And I know nothing about this yeah, man. because the history has been hidden. We've forgotten it. The institution. Yeah. What's important about that is like. As people, we've forgotten the history, but our institutions never yeah. forgot that history, right? The history was built into yeah. the institutions so that uh, we, could, we could continue transmitting the poison of white supremacy without having to own the story. Yeah, man. Right? Yeah. It's not natural. This, this didn't just happen this way. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You know, this is... Uh, a political reality. Yeah. So like not, not to, to completely cut you off, but I'm a huge roots fan and the mm-hmm. album cover of the rising of rising down album, their, their 2008 album is actually pulled from a Raleigh news and observer, uh, September 27th, 1898 news front page news article having yeah. to do wow. with the Wilmington riots. Right. Wow. Yeah, so, so the, you know, that, so that's like six weeks prior. And the, the Raleigh News and Observer is really significant in helping to drum up the, the imagined grievances of the, right. of the white citizens there mm-hmm. who eventually yeah. carried out these massacres in, in November. Yeah. 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 That's so good. And so, so again, for those of you who are just now joining us, we have special guests, Greg Gerald on our live podcast called Token Confessions. Uh, right now we're, we're diving in. We're, we've gotten to know who Greg is and we're, 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 we're setting this up for um, how history has informed our behaviors, how, how maybe individuals have forgotten history, but how our, uh, how whiteness has not forgotten uh, history, how, how the system of racism has not forgotten history, um, thus leading us to things that have come, uh, <laughs> that have surfaced over the last couple of hours so 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 before we dive deep into uh verbal vomit and processing uh greg maybe maybe set the stage for us to understand why what you just said about history historically how that plays a part into what is being manifested in front of our eyes today as we are writing history currently so so you know i vented earlier about like I'm not living in history, a historical moment. Like this is a present reality that I can parallel back to historical moments, but it's unfortunate that this is my present reality. So maybe talk about the importance of history, but how it is impacting and influencing uh, what's going on today in our culture. And then we'll dive into, we'll release Cedric to go off. (laughs) Brilliant. 
I mean, the, I think the simplest way to conceive of this is that history is not like it's not this dry thing. History is just a set of stories, right? It's just yeah. where we've been. Um, and the, the way that we understand where we are now is by the way that we narrate the stories of where we've been. Mm-hmm. And so, so all of our families have stories. Every individual has stories. Collectively, as a society, we have stories. And mm-hmm. the way that we tell those stories determine how we understand ourselves in the present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so history is, you know, it doesn't have to be like complicated and dry. It's just the stories that comprise us. It's the stories that make up our, you know, the institutions that govern us, the families and the cultures that we come from. And so either you can uh, know some of those stories or you can, and, uh, and you can begin to wield some control over how you work with those stories mm-hmm. or you cannot know them, in which case you will no control. Right. Right. And so what we have is a, uh, we have a, a white woman named Amy Cooper, right? Isn't that her name? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, who seems not to understand the story that she's a part of. And, yeah, man. and really ugly behavior, um, her violent behavior, not just ugly, right? It's worse than that, um, right. is part of a story. And right. because she doesn't seem to know the story, then she's stuck in it. She can't get out of it. Again, like Baldwin says, trapped in a history that we cannot understand. Yeah, yeah. Cedric, how do you interpret that story of what happened with this one specific incident uh, with uh, Central Park? Well, the, the, the irony is we don't even have to go that far back into history to know the significance of this because we had stories right. that we literally haven't had time for because of Ahmaud Arbery and because of Breonna Taylor, where the right. New York Police Department was policing the stay-at-home order and the social distancing rules differently with white citizens of New York and black yeah. citizens. Yeah. They yeah. literally yeah. have pictures of police officers in predominantly inhabited by those deemed white parks, police officers yeah. handing them masks. Mm-hmm. But then black uh, citizens of New York who weren't observing the social distancing or wearing the, 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 the masks literally being tackled, manhandled, brutalized yeah. in yeah. Michigan. And then, and, and then told, then told uh, well, if, you, if you're harassed by a police officer, just report it to your local officials and we'll investigate it. <laughs> right. Right. And so right, Amy Cooper is not only just reenacting the history, the recent history of of all the, quote, Karens, barbecue Becky and parking lot uh, uh, Patty and Susan Park or South Park Park Susie and all these different people. What she actually is, shout out to. Austin Shane Brown, who's the one that said this, Amy Cooper isn't a Karen. She is a Carolyn Bryant. And if you don't know who Carolyn Bryant is, Carolyn Bryant is the woman who accused Emmett Till of looking at her the wrong way. That led to his lynching. 
which Public was a cleansing. huge moment in the history of the civil rights civil rights movement. Yeah. But it yeah. wasn't until yeah. she was on her deathbed that she admitted that she lied. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so not only is she reacting recent history of people caught on tape, she is hearkening back to a Carolyn Bryant who can employ the even the threat of law enforcement, which is basically a threat of lynching. She knew what she was saying, which is the part that kills me in her apology. She leads with, I'm not racist. Well, Carolyn, I mean, Carolyn. You are. See, Amy, here's the problem. What you did was racist. Whether you believe you're a racist or not doesn't matter. We're not talking about pejorative statements about who you are as a person. We're talking about what you did and who you are does not get to absolve you of what you did. I'm not going to get into what kind of person you are because I don't know beyond the one action you made in this moment, which was abhorrent. So if you really want me to believe your apology, then you got to own what you did. You got to own the gravity of what you did. You can't just be remorseful because you are losing stuff and your life is changing. True sorrow and, and, and recompense should come with the realization of what I have done or potentially done to another person. It should not require me losing something for me to feel sorry because the only thing I'm sorry about really is the consequences of what I've done. Yeah. It's it's kind of like people that say, you know, when they're apologizing, man, I'm, I'm sorry you felt that way. Like I used to say that sarcastically to my sisters, like, Oh, I'm I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're distracted. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that that that's what you got out of the situation. I'm sorry that that uh, you interpreted my my actions and in response that way, right? Um, but but again, this is this is that you know I was venting about cognitive dissonance, right? Like Carolyn when she died, like she had to justify that dissonance that she lived with for so long, and she had to release it so that she probably had atonement, you know, theology, and I'm going to hell, or, <laughs> and so I, I got to get rid of it before I die, right? So, so, but that's what people do is they, they are trying to figure out ways to resolve the dissonance within their minds so that they don't have to face the consequences, right? So, because th- think about it, if she, if it hadn't gone viral, if, if she hadn't, you know, if it had not been requested for a, a leave of absence or whatever the case may be, would she still apologize? And if that's the case, if she would have still apologized, why did she react that way in the first place, right? And so, again, going back to what you said, Greg, like these are things that have formed and that are impressed upon us that we don't realize we're living in. We don't know and we don't understand why we are impacted by these things. Um, and so so maybe, you know, Cedric, I, w- I want to hear your perspective of, you know, you have – well, actually, I'm going to use my I'm going to use myself as an example. Okay, here we go. So, 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 so for me, growing up, I, I had a dog. I had a German Shepherd named Rambo. Right. So we fed him bones before I figured out, you know, living in the suburbs, wait, how he wait, named that was. Your dog after John I, Rambo. I, I did not name my dog. Somebody in the family named the dog Rambo. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but, 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 regardless. Uh, I grew up in environments where, like, it was frequent for us to run from dogs, right? So you don't, if you're getting chased by a dog, you're going to run for the dog or you're going to say, yo, you need to get your dog in check. 
But I was outside today and I said, man, imagine me walking in the neighborhood. Somebody's dog is coming at me and I, I can respond one of two ways. Ma'am, sir, can you get your dog or kick the dog? And what we realized today is that it's going to lead to the same outcome. Regardless, I kick them. They're going to call, you know, PETA and the police for me, you know, kicking the dog and I'm going to jail, you know. Or in this case, oh, somebody's going to say, oh, he's threatening me and my dog by telling me to get my dog. I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. You know, and it's it's as simple as walking a dog in the neighborhood. It's as simple as taking a jog in the neighborhood. Like, nothing is safe anymore. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing's off limits. Anything can happen to anybody because I think we aren't spending enough time having conversations and doing the work, especially for my white friends, doing the work to understand what it means to be white, doing the work to understand your own history um, and going through the process of developing your identity uh, without like just flighting and, and leaning into fragility in a lot of ways. There's two kind of conversations we can have. Because you and I have conversations with some people all the time that get nowhere and they take up a ton of our time. And so there's conversations with people who will play, for lack of a better phrase, the both sides card. That they approach these conversations that there's these two opposing and equal sides or perspectives that balance each other. And the failure in that is it takes no account for what is morally right and what is morally wrong. The irony being that most of the people that I have to have those conversations with are evangelical white Christians. Yeah, yeah. Who who determine what's morally and ethically right and wrong? (laughs) Or who feels like they have the authority to determine that as long as it's benefiting them? Right. Right. (laughs) But to Greg's point about history, if they don't know their history and how they're reliving that they they have no framework with which to recognize that that's what they're doing and yeah for better or for worse that's part of the reason why i'm able to stay so patient with them because they don't know what they don't know it's like jesus on the cross not to compare myself to jesus but lord forgive them because they don't know what they're doing right 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 yeah greg what are your thoughts yeah um I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, for one, the it's become like more and more glaringly obvious uh, to one, one would think, right? One, one, one would, think, would right? think it's become more glaringly obvious to most observers that moral formation within white evangelical contexts has gone horrifically wrong, right? I mean, it's like it's a formation unto death at this point. Um. And yet, uh, there's this. Uh, it's part. It's partly like this settler colonial kind of impulse that we're here to do good for you that you can't conceive of as good yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, so it's, um, it's in some ways it's impossible. It's it's very difficult to imagine a way out of that. It, yeah. It's just hard to imagine what that looks. Like. But on the other hand. One thing that's happened with Amy Cooper over the past 24 hours is that this episode has been very costly to her. Um, She's now thinking about her whiteness in a way that she never would have had to think about it before. Hmm. And um, 
which does not justify this. That doesn't make any good out of this. This is not a good situation anyway. Right. But she is now having to deal with her whiteness in a way that she never would have if it had not become so costly to her. And uh, so that got me thinking as I was, as I thought about this conversation coming up over the the course of last week, I've been reading this philosopher and um, theologian named Simone Weil, who was born in France back in uh, World War I. And uh, and there's a piece at the beginning of her book, Gravity and Grace, that I think captures uh, some of what we're up against in trying to form anti-racist discipleship into white people. Uh, And she says that, um, let's see, base motives have in them more energy than noble ones. What she's getting at in this in this section about base motives is that when it like when it costs you something, when your stomach is growling, uh, and it forces you to do the right thing, you're more likely to do than to do the right thing because your stomach is growling than if you're supposed to feel some sense of love towards your neighbor, right? Some sense of love towards your neighbor will uh, dissipate fairly easily. But if your stomach is growling, then it's hard to ignore that. And so this is one of the, this is one of the curiosities of, of forming Christian anti-racism among white people, is that it's so easy to appeal to love, right? Shouldn't we all just love each other? But that ain't working. <laughs> like, if that was going to work, you know, it would have worked a long time ago. And so the price has to get higher. White people have to begin paying a higher price. And so I, I found Amy Cooper an interesting um, way of looking at that. So now how do we make white people pay a higher price without harming black people in the process, black and brown people in the process. We will, we will be at the expense. (laughs) Well, well, then it'll go back to the both sides argument. Well, if I've got to do this, they got to do this. That's going to be the natural, the natural swing. It's like, well, if this is going to cost me something, it's got to cost them something. And they don't realize the the, the long list of of justifiable reparations. (laughs) Black population. plenty. Right, seventeen and a half trillion dollars for your well-being, for your privilege. <laughs> so, let's move to the second uh, incident, mm. the more brutal one, mm. right? The one that actually cost the life. Yep. Um, the one that that again, like, I don't think you know. I'll speak for myself. I, I'm not necessarily maliciously. Uh, trying to find every bad police brutality video and protests or whatever, um, because there are police that are great. There are police that, that do great things. It's a percentage, but there are some. However, this stuff is pretty evident, Like, and there's no denying this. Regardless of what you may think about George being on the ground, whether you assume, make you know, assumptions about his life, wrong is wrong. And Greg, as as a here's what I say: as a white male, a white person, when you when you have seen these kinds of videos over the last couple of years, how have they impacted you personally, and how have they met, made you feel? 
Um, so, for one, I, I have, I, I can't always watch them anymore. Um, you know, secondary trauma is very real, mm-hmm. and I carry a lot of it within me. And so there are moments when uh, one of these things becomes available that I just can't watch at that moment. Um, And also they're enraging. Um, And, but the uh, examining that rage has to uh, like, you have to go deeper with it. You have to keep digging into it. Um, because one of the things that that can do is separate me from it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it, I think that one of the things that all of us who've been racialized as white have to reckon with is that um, at its root, whiteness began, it was invented as a form of violence. Yeah. And so that that sort of violence lives within us. And so I can't just rage at what I've seen and other the cop that did it or other Amy Cooper, right? I have to um, take a moment to interrogate myself. How does this sort of violence live within me? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so to, to seek some healing from being formed in this, in this false God of whiteness means doing that kind of work. Like, and it has to be patient and it's slow and it's painful. And sometimes yeah. you can't watch because the trauma is too much. Yeah. Um, but you also can't turn your eyes away. Like you can't pretend that this didn't happen just because you right. didn't watch every single video. You yeah. have to reckon with it and keep interrogating yourself about it. That's the first thing. But I think you're also uh, on the other side of the coin for a white yeah, person. I mean, Maybe, right? But none of us get a pass until... Right, right. Yeah. Right. No, 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 no. I'm not saying about the past, but I'm saying, like, you're... When you choose not to watch, it's from a completely different perspective as one who's doing the work versus other people who are not in the work. I'm not going to do this. I don't don't have time for that. Right. Yeah, let's let's just get over it. Let's just move on from it. You know, it is what it is. You know, he's probably doing something that he should have been doing. You know, they go to all the what about is it's like you're you're on the opposite. You're on the other side is what I, what I'm what I'm uh, articulating and trying to get to. Yeah, because so. because I, I I would I would make an assumption here that for you you don't just see some random guy or woman on a video. You see your neighbors of well over a decade. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I see people with names and stories and I see incidents where I've witnessed police misconduct. Right. So those things are real uh, within me. And and certainly most of my white peers don't have that um, that same kind of experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I I do think it is important for for white folks in particular to watch these things. Um, to watch the videos, to know the names, to know the stories. Um, it's also, you know, it, it strikes me that uh, sort of like the story of Thomas, um, where Jesus <laughs> says, blessed is the one who did not see. Oh, get him. Right? <laughs> get him. Um, I mean, like this, you know, it, the fact that it's on video doesn't mean that it's new. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You know, this is this yeah. is as old as policing itself. Right. Uh, sort of beginning as as yeah. slave catching and in the yeah. 1700s. And can so, we cl- can, can we, can you clarify the history of policing? Because I was, uh, I was, it was brought to my attention about an article that kind of debunks the myth of policing in America because it was, you know, established in England. And can, can you just talk about the history <laughs> of policing? For well, <laughs> so, I mean, we can't like reduce it down to a single thing. Just, just reduce it. Just a right. little <laughs> It's not just a single thing. Certainly, there have always been like safety patrols in in neighborhoods um, and in cities around the around the world. But the history of what policing looks like in the United States is intimately tied up with slave patrols in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds yep. in the country, right? And which very neatly explains why we continue to have so many racial disparities in the way that the policing system works, because this is how it was designed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so policing, not a single thing. Uh, there's not a single story of policing, but that is a big part of the way that story works within this country. Yep. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you can see it like the, so that our own police department just two years or so ago, uh, released this report about how they handled stops where there was a small amount of marijuana found, right? Mm-hmm. And and the data that they released on themselves showed very plainly deep racial inequities in whether officers made an arrest or did not make an arrest. It's one of those things where they have the 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 um, the opportunity at their own discretion what to do. Now let's pause. This is coming from a white man, not a black man. So hopefully you will take his word at face value and not have to go fact check him, which I'm sure you won't have to go fact check him. But in case, in case you need facts, we will find the link in the research for those of you who are skeptical that we are in opposition to your beliefs. Continue, Greg. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, so blessed are those who have not seen and believed anyway. Uh, I mean, that's like, I, you know, people, th- this is, uh, this is what, um, black and brown people have been telling us. Yeah. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I watched it. I, I, I love people who've been deeply wounded by our local police. Yeah. It's yeah. even better. If I uh, if I didn't have to know those people, if I had just believed what I had been told long ago, yeah, yeah. well, it shows that we value we we don't value stories and experiences of certain kinds of people, right? Because we we just literally omit, we overlook, we override, we just don't consider. Like Cedric and I talk about this all the time. Like you know, we we try to you know be up to date with social media, and Cedric will find this stuff when it happens, and it's just it's a written blog, right? And it's not until the video comes out, then people want to go back and research and fact check what is constantly said that Cedric says. And Cedric, Cedric's pretty reliable. He, yeah. he, he does his homework. I do my homework. Like, it's not just a, oh, right. we're just saying something, getting aroused and to grow right. a fan base. Or, care less about that. Or even moreover, I rarely ever resort to a meme to express my opinion. And it's intentional. 
because yeah. one memes oversimplify things. And number two, even as witty and you know creative as a meme might be, I'd rather speak and I'd rather have to take accountability and ownership of my own words as opposed right. to someone's reduction of a complex situation or right. even a situation that's not that complex. I mean, this is not that complex. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm holding back, but I will it, give it yeah. time. So, um, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I've got go a story on, but later. Well, go for it, So one, one of the things that, like, to, to your point, like, so the marijuana thing, I know it anecdotally, just from being a youth pastor of like an all white youth group, like in Same. 10 years Same. of working at just one church of doing youth ministry and having enough kids of color that I can count on both my hands and still have a few fingers left over the number of kids under my care, my love, my discipleship, my formation, who I know we're getting busted for marijuana, and it is not on their rap sheet. Yep, yep. Or, or, or uh, take take all the parties in, in Union County where I was oh, yeah. a pastor, right? right? All the parties that got busted, the drugs, right? right. Um, actually, that more you, more more convictions out in Union, Union County than Mecklenburg, right? And that you have nothing. community house. High school, we probably told this episodes ago, but it bears repeating. They literally had to have a parents meeting to tell the parents to stop throwing alcohol to minors. Don't tell me they weren't looking the other way when those kids were smoking weed, if they were letting them drink under age two. But like yeah. the fact that they could even have a meeting where that said, and there's like zero arrests going on for yeah. underage yeah. drinking. Yeah, supplying yeah. alcohol to Myers. Like, yo, yeah. I was at a party as a of age college student where there was underage drinking going on, and I wasn't even drinking and I was of age. Yeah. I broke out when I saw the police coming into that apartment yeah. complex parking lot. I yeah. straight up abandoned and left my white friends because I was like one of two dudes of color at that party. I might've been the only person of age at that yeah. party. And I knew that if I stayed, when they came in, I was going to catch it for supplying uh, alcohol with minors. Yeah. And my potential well, career as a youth pastor would have been over before it got started. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Cedric, Cedric, we have to save the resources and the officers for the at-risk minority communities Jeez. so that we can put gun, uh, metal detectors in the schools Bro. and protect. Bro, it's, it blows my mind. It Bro. blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you look, if we policed white communities, predominantly white communities, for just marijuana, right? Uh, it, opioids. If we police it like we do, you know, opioids, the number of young white, deemed white youth who would have a hell of a time being qualified for a loan, being able to get a loan for apartment, a car, college, you name it, who their, their, their future 
And what's the phrase we always hear? Well, we don't want to ruin their future. Yeah. Which basically is a way of saying we don't we don't I'm gonna refrain from cussing today. We don't give a damn about the black kids. Screw their future because they don't have a future because they're like this is just this is right, this is what we expect. Right, right, right. So the system and the cycles continues, right? Mm-hmm. So the same the same story or the same picture, just a new picture frame. Right. Thus Another black man on the ground saying, I can't breathe. Right. Clearly, multiple times for eight minutes, as David Parks told me earlier today. Because we only got like a five-minute video, right? right. So, but the total was eight minutes. And his body went numb. He couldn't feel anything. He's saying, hey, like, here I am. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Put me in the car. I can't get up because you guys have hurt me so much. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And... What happens? Cops on face, knees just on the throat, just going up and down. Other cops are standing there unfazed, and unfortunately, the other yeah. cop was should have been an ally. Um, yeah. But but blue is first, right? We believe blue um, should have been an ally. Yo, <laughs> but, I, I'm 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 about to go in a little bit. Oh please, because constantly, constantly, I hear the refrain. It's not all police officers. And you know what? You're right. It's not all police officers. And we hear the phrase, well, it's just one bad apple. Finish uh, the quote. Finish the quote. <laughs> it's one bad apple spoils, spoils the, the bunch. Uh-huh. And what happened today... That, that only applies for black people, bro. Look. <laughs> what happened today is a microcosm, and I said this on my Facebook page, of the problem. You got three officers standing there watching him do it and do nothing. We're not accounting for all the neutral officers who stand by and do nothing. And what do we say about standing by in neutrality in moments of oppression? You are taking the aside of the oppressor. I'm worried about this false good-bad binary. Do the right thing. Have some compassion. Do the right thing. Like how many of the bystanders are standing there thinking, I should seriously tackle the officer off of him so he might have a chance to live, but won't do it because they know they're going to get killed, too. And here's the craziest part. Let a white person be one of the people there and tackle the officer and they will survive the incident. They won't get killed. Yeah. Let a white person be there. But yeah. it happens in an all-black community where nobody can do anything without them facing the same fate. So for all the police department apologists, I got no problem with the individual police officers. I know individual police officers, and they tell me they know the bad apples. Yeah. Here's my thing. If you want police officers to be respected, which ain't even a real issue when I got to run into people all the time who got Blue Lives Matters T-shirts on mm-hmm. constantly. So you ain't disrespected. You are like the highest respected profession between you and Catholic priests. 
There's no accountability. You guys want re- <laughs> show some accountability. Don't be like the Catholic Church. Y'all suffer from the same problem because you guys won't hold yourselves accountable. And then yeah. you want, but and then you sitting there. Well, people don't respect you. What are you talking about? What you talking about? You like you guys aren't even held responsible. Oh wait a minute, I forgot. The dude that killed Justine Dermond, he was held responsible, right? Oh, right. He's a Malian officer who killed an Australian woman. He didn't even kill a white American woman. He just killed a general white woman. Well, she she looked white. That's good enough. Look, Close again, enough. I'm not saying that he should have no. gotten the same treatment as them. He should have been held re- accountable, and he was. But that no. just compounds the very thing that we're talking about, that it is racially driven. Yep. That the racial disparity and inequality is so blatantly obvious. Yeah. And y'all know you can get away with it. Hold yeah. each other accountable. Not just for our sake, but for your safety. Yeah. Unfortunately, black people are at the expense of political propaganda. <laughs> and history history perpetuating itself. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even want to talk, Greg. Just go, Greg. I, I don't even want to. I don't even. Want, I don't even. I, I, I've already given my bit on my personal things, uh, because for me, it's it's like here, here's the reality, right? And you know, and I literally I show Facebook. I said, here are my two sons, brown boys, biracial boys. That I'm gonna have to raise black. What do you suggest I do? How do you suggest I raise them when this is history? This is their history that they're living. What is your advice for me raising boys that look like this, that are cute right now and not a threat to society, and and white women love my boys until they want to date their daughters, what do you suggest I do? How am I as a parent supposed to prepare them? I know the answer, but how would you suggest I parent my boys for what's coming in their future, very near future? So I I am... uh, and unfortunately, I'm kind of like with you going back to what you said, Greg. Like I have to watch it in moderation. <laughs> um, a, a yeah. part of it is to to keep myself. Um, it, it, honestly, it's it's a way of healing, but also like self care, and also just like being like closely aligned with my people who share my struggles that only my people can really truly understand. Right. Um, and, and so it keeps me in solidarity and oneness with with my people. Um, I don't have the privilege to be numb because even though I want to, I, I know I know my responsibility and I know what I'm hoping to accomplish in my lifetime, right? Um, and so that doesn't mean that I'm not void of emotions or grief or anger or lamenting. Um, that's just saying that I I understand the balance. I understand the balance. I know when to dive in and when I am mentally able to engage in a video and, and conversations and when I need to just opt out to protect myself. And I think, unfortunately, that's the decision that many black people, we, we have to we have to literally wrestle with every day. You know, like I can't literally post the four or five videos and articles that I get a day about this stuff because, yo, I, I need to breathe. Because it, it is overwhelming. It's, it's exhausting. And the most exhausting thing beyond the videos and the, the articles is hearing the same responses from people over and over. Well, well what are the facts? Let's just wait till the fa- all the facts come out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what Sanchez didn't? 
man, this is you, you. Why do you have to make everything about race? Why is everything about race? You know, you know, can't we just focus on Jesus? Can't we just be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? After all, that's what Jesus was about. Yeah, you know what why, Jesus why are you said? <laughs> Whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. That's right. Right, right. So, so at some yeah, point, in particular yeah. Christians, y'all need to recognize the stuff that you're letting slide, looking other way, that the system of white supremacy has trained you to not take it seriously the heart of black liberation theology (laughs) is that people who are part of the historically oppressed are black that blackness ultimately doesn't have to do with the color of your skin and the amount of melanin you have it has to do with your sociopolitical station and jesus was in a sociopolitical station where he was black which was the disconnect for white pastors and why they wrote it off in the first place. Right. They, they refused to see that perspective. But it shows that, it, that in all their attempts to be colorblind, they subscribe to race thank theory. Thank you. Thank you. This, this theology was to liberate Jesus everybody. Jesus was black in a way that's not even saying he is physically skin color black. They right. could not abide. Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. right. What can I say? Because, too because smart you're, you're oh, making the gospel political, right? <laughs> you dare not make the gospel political. <sighs> Please talk about that, Greg Gerald, for those of us who uh, get your witty and sarcastic humor, for those of us that may not understand what you mean by that statement. Uh, to be political, uh, politics is about how we live life together uh, in various manifestations, various forms. Yeah. So the gospel is 100% political. It's not about the salvation of individuals. It's about the reign of God in the world. And the, the reign of God or the kingdom of God, as the uh, womanists and the theologians would say, um, the kingdom of God is necessarily bound up in our communities. Mm-hmm. And so the gospel is always political. It always speaks to our order. It always speaks to the social order. It always speaks to governments. The prophets always speak to governments. Um, it does not, that does not mean that the gospel is partisan, that God is either a Republican or a Democrat. Right? That's not true. Um, but the gospel is inherently political. There's no way around it. Yeah. Right, right. And this kingdom community that you're talking about, where we go wrong is getting into homogenous communities where we have no understanding of other perspectives and experiences. Thus, uh, you know, the effects of racist ideas and racism. Yeah, yeah, it, you're right. Our, our communities are so culturally determined, right? All of, and all of our expressions, rightly so, are culturally determined. Um, yeah. Um, because that's just who we are as a people. Like, we come from specific stories. Um, but in, uh, in black church settings, that story is actively a part of discipleship. The story of being black in America and a black American church is always present. The story of being white in America and a white American church is never present. Nobody it's absolute. <laughs> this is the standard. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> you people, you get to where we are. Right. We right. are the church. We are right. the church. So, this yes, is yes, precisely. So, so uh, Willie, uh, Willie Jennings, a uh, great theologian who teaches at Yale now, uh, talks about this as, as um, whiteness is trying to form the world into a certain kind of maturity. The problem is that the maturity is really stunted. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not it's not mature at all. But it but whiteness tries to mature the world into a certain way. Um, but it's a way that ultimately turns out to be um, pathological or narcissistic, narcissistic, or even demonic in some respects. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, that's not it's not too much of a stretch to say that. Yeah. And so to so if you don't reckon with that, like if you don't name it. Um, the, the spirits, there's a, there's a story in Mark nine where, uh, Jesus is asked just after the transfiguration asked to heal a boy who's possessed by a spirit and the spirit is as a silencing spirit, yeah. taking away the boy's voice, right? And to be healed of whiteness is to get over that silence, to have yes. the silence taken so that we can name it and so that we can move towards healing from it. Yeah. And but that that's that's so difficult, right? Because that re- that reveals so much, right? That reveals so much within the person that has to name things for what they are and be truthful about it, and not again try to justify the behavior and the the the, the thought process, right? Right. And so, and that's where the problem is, right? Like that's you know like that's where the problem and attention is. Is if I don't if I can't justify it, then I'm just going to suppress it and never talk about. It. Right. And, right, and so it strikes really deeply into not just us personally, but into our family stories. So I, there's yeah, a story yeah. from Dr. Barber um, that I think is really profound. So I, I share it every once in a while. So Dr. Barber started his uh, Reverend William Barber, by the way, Moral Mondays and the Poor People's mm-hmm. Campaign. If you're listening, mm-hmm. that is uh, started in Danville, Virginia, which is actually near where my people are from, as a labor organizer. Uh, so working in factories trying to, to organize workers. And he ran into this problem. He was also pastoring where black folks would show up to the meetings after work, but white people wouldn't. Hmm. So he goes to one of his wise deacons at his church where he's pastoring, says, you know, deacon, this, this is the issue that I'm having. Um, you know, I can get white people to tell me what sounds good, but then they won't follow through, right? They won't show up for the meetings. They won't organize with us. And the deacon says, well, Pastor, you have, or, uh, you know, Dr. Barber, you got to understand what they're up against. That um, for black people, they're just determining whether you're real or not. Like whether, you know, we're going to follow through if this guy's for real. But white folks got to make a decision about whether or not their mama lied to them. Mm. And that's <laughs> right. That's what's at stake. Right. It's, it's not just have I told myself a story that's untrue? Because if I have, I can deal with that. Right. And but also, did my mama and did my grandma and did her mama and her grandma? Right. I, and all of a sudden, like the the depth to which this forgetting has gone, right, gets to be almost overwhelming. Right. So we we, we have this saying and 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 black nomenclature. Of something really good, if it's something really good, in particular a food, a delicacy, so good it make you want to smack your mama. Right, right, right. 
Because the idea being is that my mom has lied to me all of this time. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. She always had me thinking of her cheesecake. Oh, you tell me about there. this. Oh, why yeah. you never told me about this cheesecake over here? Because this cheesecake slapped. Yep. Right? But so, that's the other side of the coin. Right. But, like, yeah. I, I mean, I say all that to, like, I, I that resonates with what you're saying. Even yeah. though I don't know it experientially, I can... I can put myself in the shoes of what it would be like to all of a sudden have to question whether or not your my parents lied to me, which is also fascinating when you look at the, quote, progressive Christian movement Mm -hmm. that for people of color, Jesus rarely ever comes off the table because there's something about us and our experience that we know Jesus identifies with us. Yeah. But for those who are raised in predominantly white Christian circles, when they go through this deconstruction process, often Christ is up for grabs mm. because to them, it's like Jesus lied to me. Whereas, and I'll speak for myself, for me, it was never a matter of whether Jesus lied to me. It was the fact that I was in this church where I was accepted and I was embraced, but I was accepted and embraced because I was just black. I wasn't no nigga. I ascended to whiteness in a way that made them feel comfortable and where whiteness was silently affirmed right and and in particular color blindness was affirmed yeah yeah so i whether i realized it or not became this living manifestation of their belief that they had uh transcended racism and white supremacy which they, and if I got to be honest, even me, we were dead wrong. Yep. And it really, again, to go back to your original point, it took me relearning the history that I hadn't been told, which was easier for me to accept, yep. to recognize yep. how even I had done that, yep. which is a big part of the reason why I continue to be have, able to have patience with a lot of my deemed white friends. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, for those of you just joining us, I definitely want to encourage you to go back and watch for full context. Um, As we're wrapping up also, if you have questions or comments, feel free to drop them in. Hey, Mom Mikhail, feel free to drop them in and we'll try to uh, answer them in the last 10 minutes or so. Um, But but again, Cedric, what you just said is a part of our token experience and journey. Right. It's, it's, It's like regardless of how well you do everything, how, how, how many boxes you check off the list, how well you present yourself, how comfortable white people feel with you. Like you still are not the exception to the rule. Right. Which you're is going to hit, you're going to hit a ceiling at some point. Right. But for, for those who I was, look, I was one of their pastors. No. And I don't take that for granted. Given everything I said, I, I still don't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. For them to see this side of me where I'm passionate about these issues, 
or I'm even angry at times, it's really hard for them. It's really, really hard for them to reconcile the me that they saw in that space and the me they see now. And the thing that that they got to realize, the me they see now has always been there. It's just that if I showed it, if I showed all my cards, I lose my my job and my livelihood. But there came a point where I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. For my sanity, I couldn't do it anymore. And a big part of it was, is because I was so stinking isolated. Yeah. 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 And I think for me, that's the, that's the detriment of black identity in America. It's, it's, it's like racism wants to keep you from believing in yourself and fully being yourself by putting these things and limitations in the way of you fully being liberated and free to be yourself as you were created to be. However, it's like, you know, because that was literally my revelation that I had earlier, right? Like, like people even on here, like there are a lot of people on here that I've seen pop on that have no idea about this journey and this Sanchez. And the only thing they're going to say, especially Christians, oh, he's just, he's going off the rails. He's been hanging with those liberals up there in Charlotte and, you know, in that voice right there with that redneck plane, right? Yeah. Like, and it's like, no, no, this isn't, this isn't that. This is me, like, walking truly or attempting and starting the process, of, the process of healing, first of all, um, and, and then the process of growth, but also the process of me being myself. Like you said, this was always in us. It was just not allowed to come out until we took control of the narrative and we could, we took back control of our lives well, right. and started really, really walking in our identity. We had to count the cost. Still count the cost. Well, well, but that's the thing. The yeah. cost of my ability to remain employed there versus the cost of my own personal sanity, health, and well-being wasn't worth it to stay in those spaces anymore. And again, there might no. be people who are listening to this, and this will sound like I left church at Charlotte for a different reason that was stated in my statement. I left because of all the reasons that were stated in my statement. But look, if I'm being honest, I also left because I reached a point where I recognized that if I was to truly not just be myself, but pastor and shepherd them out of white supremacy, they would run me out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Greg. I was just a, an, an affirmation. Um, I think about this often. James Cone says that blackness is the image of God in black people, mm. and and in a white congregational setting. That's threatening, right? Because there's a sort of freedom that is available to you that's not available to us because there's not a parallel to that. Whiteness is not the image of God in white people. It's, all, it's almost the opposite of that. And, and so it's very, very challenging to, to get the freedom to celebrate 
That's good. Blackness in black people, right? But when you do that, you begin to get a little bit more free as a white person when you can understand that. Mm -hmm. um, but in, so anyway, I just wanted to add that in because that quote from James Cone has always yeah. grabbed me. Yeah, uh, that's so good. To, you know, to uplift that in, in, uh, in both of you guys, the, yeah. the giftedness that that is. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Um, one, one question we had, uh, you know, what resources are y'all consuming, particularly Greg, that you'd invite other people deem white folks or white folks to read, watch, or listen to? I mean, you got to read James Baldwin. Like, yeah. drop everything you're doing and go pick up the fire next time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, and I'm, I, in all seriousness, like, seriously, drop everything you're doing and go pick up the fire next time. Yeah. Uh, I read it uh, two or three times a year. It's short um, and it's deeply, deeply um, impactful to me. Yeah. Um, but I, I think. I mean, so much of what American culture is has been uh, has been created by Black communities. So to begin recognizing that, I and mean, I'm a jazz musician, I play saxophone around town, right? And so I, that's a like that's music created by Black people. Most of what you hear on the radio is music created by Black people, unless you're listening to European classical music, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Including country. Including country, right? The only good things about country music are the ones that have black influence. <laughs> no, I ain't, I ain't taking no, I ain't taking no part in that trash CCM stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm with you on that. Uh, I am not, I am not responsible. For you didn't have trash. anything to do with that. <laughs> no, we ain't got nothing. We ain't got nothing to do with that trash. Sorry, <laughs> sorry for all you K Love lovers. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I, I mean, there's so much good literature out there, though. Yeah, so much good mm -hmm. literature. Um, yeah, and Baldwin is just one. Yeah, yeah. I, I I would say for me, uh, you know, um, I, I've surfaced and circled back around not only James Baldwin but but James Cone, yeah, um, and, and a lot of uh, Malcolm X speeches, um, and, and and the parallel and the thread that I'm trying to follow is understanding the experience of Baldwin, Cone, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Tom Skinner, and John Perkins. Right. And, I, and I'm just analyzing like what it meant to just like the black power movement. Right. What, what was that about? You know, why did it why didn't the radical approach work? But why didn't the nonviolent approach work either? You know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm literally just basking in those. But particularly James Cone, because what Cedric said and what I affirmed about uh, the liberation theology, that that was the that was the thing that like most white pastors could not get over is he says that, you know, God is black and, you know, all of this stuff. And like, there's such a, there's such a beautiful, beautiful uh, nature to the, the words that he's writing um, and the humility with that to, to accept criticism from, from various people that mentored him and taught him who were primarily white. And, and then also feminists, uh, feminists, uh, uh, womanist the, uh, theologians and stuff like that. So, so it's it's for me. I want to have that openness as I learn, as I grow, and so I've been personally encouraged by James Cone and James Baldwin because he talks a lot about James Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> so I finally watched um, the movie adaptation of If Bill Street Could Talk last night or yesterday morning. Mm. I've had that movie for over a year. 
And it's wow. taken me this long to finally watch it because of the very stuff that we're dealing with today. Yeah. But here's the thing. Like, watching If Bill Street Could Talk, which is a beautifully done movie. It is emotionally difficult and it is a beautiful film. Everything about that film is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is like Brianna Taylor is the modern version of Bill Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. But instead of a rape charge being put on a random black man by a vindictive police officer. It's a no knock drug raid where the pregnant girlfriend, instead of having to raise the child on her own while the father, the child's dad is in prison for a crime he didn't commit, the pregnant mom gets shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And the father of the baby goes to jail on a on a murder trial. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it goes back to anyone who is under the delusion. And that's what it is. I'm not trying to be no. insulting, but it's a delusion for anyone who's still under the delusion that for some reason, these stories are a big issue only because the liberal media is putting it before us. Please start consuming black art. Please start consuming black music. Please start consuming black literature. These are things we have been writing about, singing about, artistically expressing about for generations. Yeah. But Cedric, we ain't playing no music and singing sweet vocals and and, and and throwing a ball in the hoop and running that pit skin from end zone to end zone. So why should we care? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have to laugh from from, the, from, from just being pissed off and, and, and crying. Right. No, yeah. we literally, we laugh to keep from crying. We make these jokes to keep from crying. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not even being funny and saying that. You're right. The number yeah, yeah. I'm making, but like, yo, like what, what really is the difference between the McMichaels and these four Minneapolis police officers? A uniform. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Like if, 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 yeah. if you think that there's a difference aside from that, I'm all ears. Yeah. But yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Yes. They, same, same, same patterns. Right? <laughs> same but, everything. Bystanders dude, watching and filming. Right. Dude was a suspect. In forgery, he was a suspect in a in a non-violent offense. Suspect, mind you, of a non-violent offense for which, like we have endured financial crises in the last ten years because no. of what, if you were really being honest, amounts to forgery or deception in the financial world, particularly. Home mortgages. Wells Fargo. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. The, the, the white people, the white communities commit the same crimes that he was a suspect in at these monster rates and they get they bailed out by the federal government. Yeah. 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 Uh, good music and good art to check out. 
recommendations, and then we'll do uh, final thoughts with everybody. All right. Listen to early Public Enemy. Listen to Nina Simone. Yeah. Listen to... Look, I know the language ain't for everybody, but I kid you not, listen to early Ice Cube. Post-NWA, but early Ice Cube. Mm. Not all of it is, but there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. What about you, Greg? Um, You know, I told you I play jazz. Today's Miles Davis's birthday. Mm. Uh, I was about to say. (laughs) We're on the same page. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All you know, all that takes some interpretation to understand the the social setting that comes out of because it doesn't have words to it. Um, Yeah, you got the patience for that. Um, uh, local artist Romare Bearden, who was part of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's Charlotte, Charlotte Charlotte-based folks, and uh, I always dig. um, I've been listening to some like early '70s Stevie Wonder. Mm. Nice, nice. Not, not the cuts that you hear on the radio all the time. Yeah, you gotta uh, go the deep cuts. But there's some others uh, that, if you get a little more inside the the albums under the, yeah. the greatest hits, there's some yeah. really deep stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's some common singles that you need to check out. Common. common. Okay. Yep. Yep, yep. The, the the rapper Common. I mean, yeah, yeah. you said Stevie Wonder. One of the songs he's got Black America again. Like that's deep, no. and some other jazz uh, musicians who are delving into this, which again goes into the interpretive thing. But um, I'm gonna butcher his name, Ambrose in Ambrose uh, and sorry. Yes, yeah, and um, I just had the name Robert Glasper is doing some amazing things right yep. now. Yep, but, and in general, <laughs> yeah, Origami Harvest by by Ambrose. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. I'm just gonna name one song. I'm just gonna name one song. That's a more relevant song that I just want us to engage in the art, the visual art, the lyrical art, and the artistic expression. This is America by Childish Gambino. Uh-huh. I got better. No music video for this. Go on YouTube, look it up, get the lyrics, and look. I'm telling you, if you got a weak stomach for for, for profanity, this ain't for you. But you still need to listen to it. It's called uh, um, "Patriotism" on the Sound Bombing Two album. Mm. So Google "Patriotism" Soundbody uh, Sound Sound Bombing Volume Two by Company Flow. Yeah. Yeah, man. You're not going to uh, find it on Apple Music. I'm telling you that now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Kendrick Lamar. Yep. Obviously. Yes. Yep. Big Kendrick. fan of Kendrick. Yeah. Some J. Cole. J. Cole. Absolutely. Uh, I love uh, Black Messiah D'Angelo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 again, there's so, there's so many, so many, uh, there's so much out there that, that you just need to go de- just research and just, just study. Um, again, you have to eliminate your purposes. John Legend and the Roots. Um, the, uh, the yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, it's like a cartoon, like characters. characters yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah. I can't believe I can't remember the name of the album because I just recently listened to oh, oh, what am I thinking? Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? Oh, yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. So... Final thoughts, final words. 
Uh, Greg, you're our guest. What are your final thoughts, final words, advice, encouragement, rebuke, slap in the face, whatever? <laughs> um, let's see. How do I sum it all up? You know, I would say that um, – so it, in my book, I wrote this letter to my children um, that, of course, is not just to them because I put it in a book. Uh, and at the end of that – I've tried to I've tried to tell them that um, though we've been fed a series of lies, that we can learn how to think and act truthfully, and that we owe it both to our neighbors but also to ourselves mm-hmm. as Southerners to finally rebel for the right reason. Mm-hmm. And so I'd put that to your white listeners out there that it's time for us to rebel for this time for the right reason. And he's not saying rebel against wearing masks and going back to oh, eliminating social distancing. You South Carolina people, you rebels. You. <laughs> oh, geez. He's not talking. Let's, let's protest. Man. You're protesting the wrong thing, brothers. You're trying, this is you're trying to wind me up. <laughs> uh, yeah, Scepter, what about you, man? Um... In the same vein, I had a conversation with a guy today. He was saying, you know, what we really need, we need another Martin Luther King. And I said, bro, I'm going to be honest with you. Ain't no new Martin Luther King Jr. coming. He's like, yeah, but we just, like, need some kind of, like, march or protest. And I was just like, look, protests and marches don't work. When Bloody Monday happened, March across Selma Bridge. Like, that changed things. Because what America decided on that day is they could not stomach and abide by a mass group of men deemed white, brutalizing, unarmed, civil disobedient people of color who are just trying to exercise their right to vote on national television. They couldn't abide watching them get beaten to within an inch of their life. Mm. But what America decided that day is that we could watch one individual person violate the rights of a black individual, black or brown individual. That's what we decided that day. You understand the difference. Yeah. That that that's what was decided. Because now we just watch videos and we say the same thing that all those people who watch the news reports of Selma said that day, not out loud, but in their hearts. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of racist. We made a decision that day of what kind of racism is acceptable and what kind of racism isn't acceptable. Yeah. That's that's all we decided that day. Yeah. And so now if you want to protest, you need a permit, they map you out of march and they will make us look like crazy people. Mm. To Greg's point, y'all need to rebel. Look what y'all been able to accomplish just over 
shelter in place over a national health, a global health crisis. Look what y'all been able to do. Right. Which, look, I'm going to get real honest here. Everybody was cool with the stay at home order until all of a sudden we found out that the people that were being affected by COVID-19 the most was black people. And that's when everything changed. That's right. That's right. That's when everything changed. That's when we said, well, we don't need to be up in the house. That's only affecting them, which is basically a big F you to the black community. Facts. So, like, look, y'all need to rebel. We can't be the ones out there doing it because it don't matter when we do it. Right. It matters. And I hate that this is the reality. Don't get me wrong. I hate that this is the reality. I wish I could do more. But if what I got to do is tell y'all that y'all need to be the ones pounding the pavement. Look, in my home state, dudes rode up with 8Ks and AR-15s in the state house. And shouted down police officers in face masks. Yeah. And they were uninhibited in doing that. If y'all can do that, y'all can change this. Yeah. But Cedric, what what about the black guys that had AK-47s and they were on Capitol Hill as well? But even that. Like, look, that was them specifically providing protection for a politician because the police were doing it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. She she had to get dudes from the local fire department who were black to exercise their Second Amendment rights to protect her because the police were not doing their job in protecting her because the rights of these angry white people was more important than their safety. Yeah, it's it's right in front of us, y'all. It is right. It's, it's 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 very apparent. <laughs> and so so my my final words and advice. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to encourage you guys to go buy Greg's book, yes. A Riff of Love. Uh, we'll put a link in the page and in the description and on social media. But buy his book. OK, it's very important. Follow his work. He's a very important man. He's a very important man. He's a, he's a very, 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 very extraordinary man. It's just very important. <laughs> Maybe I'll have some authority if I just repeat everything I'm saying. Right. Anyways, <laughs> it, it, here, here, here are my final words and my final thoughts. If you are a person of color, a black person who listens to our podcast, continue to listen, and I hope that you are finding healing. You feel like there are some other people that get where you're coming from. You're able to see that there are allies that are non-black uh, that are out there doing the work with us. And so hopefully that brings you some hope and some encouragement. If you are a, a white person listening to Token Confession and Token Confessions and you're not quite, uh, you're just starting your journey and you're, you're on this road, don't give up. Don't give up at all, right? And, and know that it's going to take time, but but don't give up. Um, and a practical way that you can continue to get involved is by becoming a Patreon of Token Confessions. We are a resource podcast that is here to help inform you. Uh, but when you're you're, let's face it, we don't pay for education. Education is not free. So so 
I would encourage you to become a Patreon. Look in the comments for Greg's book, support Greg's work. This is a way that we can move the needle forward. So again, anybody that that is doing the work of anti-racism and, and bringing perspective and helping to shape your future and your pathway forward, it's important for you to support. And we couldn't do this live podcast, have decent audio and all of this stuff without our patrons. So, um, so support uh, not only black art, black entertainment, but black people that are trying to do the work. Because at the end of the day, we need your help. We need your, your uh, yeah, we need your help. We can't do this alone. <laughs> we need your privilege, right? Well, <laughs> like, you know, I'll, I'll, you. I'll, I'll be honest. Look, this is, this is time away from my family. You know, Same. like, look, I'm happy to do it. And as my youth ministry professor said, anything you love, you'll do for free. And like, I would rather not have to do this. I would rather things in this world be as such that this isn't necessary, but this is that important to me, not just for my sake as a black man, but for yeah. our sake as humankind. Nice. Right. This, there's a reason why I'm so stinking intentional about saying people deemed white and, 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 and the system of whiteness and the idea of whiteness, because I want to put this to y'all in such a way that you can receive it. And, you know, I'm not personally attacking you just because our racial hierarchy has deemed you white. Yeah. Right. And you're not always going to find people like us that are willing to put Bro. it in a way that's 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 digestible. We, right? like, we like, need to bring on one of our friends who are, and this ain't throwing shade at them, the angry black man. <laughs> and they're not angry. They're just they're just telling it like it is. But based on your cognitive, your 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 thinking and your your experiences, you're going to think this person. Like people think that I'm probably a raging liberal, right? Or anytime I talk passionately, oh, you're angry. Why are you so forceful and aggressive? Well, you know, what's wrong with wanting people to be liberated? Well, we don't want black people to get liberated because, <laughs> you know, we got we to gotta keep them where they are. But anyways, thank you guys for listening and tuning in. This video will be up for, I mean, forever. Um, so if you didn't get to watch all of it, please go back and watch the whole thing for context. Like, don't just try to get sound bites and disagree or try to figure out like what's quotable to defend your argument. Go back and watch the whole thing. And more, moreover, go listen to our podcast. Start at episode one, season one, so you can have uh, some clarification and some understanding about where we are heading and where, why we are uh, on this journey to uh, pursuing anti-racism. So, uh, Greg, bro, thank you so much, man. Yeah. Like this, this is a blast, bro. Yeah, and it's, awesome it's, me too. Yeah, man. Yeah, so uh, follow Greg. Uh, get his book, A Riff of Love. It's, it's on. Literally, we put the link in the in the bio or whatever. So so just find the book. Support this man's work. He's doing incredible work that's very much needed in our uh, country. So we'll catch you guys later on. And yeah. Oh.